bless you for being an angel just when it seemed that heaven was not for me welcome to drunk church i'm cosima b concordia and i'm aurora layborn and today we're talking about Avki Saketapolo's Amazing Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia. And today we're just doing an introduction. So we're literally not going beyond the literal introduction <laughs> to the book. So you're going to be hearing a lot about this book. Yeah. So we highly recommend listeners to get their hands on a copy of this amazing book and to read along with us because this is the beginning of what will be a series engaging with Avki's work. So Avki Saketapolo is a psychoanalyst and so she like has a practice as a psychoanalyst and also her essay Beyond Consent which is what then inspired this book is the thing that led us on to find hatred of sex. Tim Dean and Oliver Davis are very much colleagues we're really, really excited to dive into her work. Mm -hmm. And so the work is kind of split up partially through these different psychoanalytic accounts of her patients. Tell me your thoughts on sexuality beyond consent. Like what were your takeaways just, you know, reading the introduction? So what for me immediately stuck out is how pragmatic and performative this text is. So it almost is like Avgi is inviting us to like sit on her couch and to go through this analytic session with her. So it feels like a collective process, like a collective undertaking. And it feels really practical, despite how theoretically dense it is. And it is very theoretically dense. It's always inviting you to rethink your own relationship to all of the different theories that it introduces or all of the different theoretical terms of art. I loved how it is so openly critical of the very tradition within which it is situated. So it's very openly critical of psychoanalysis, for example. And I know we're going to have to like tackle the sticky question of like why Freud in 2023. <laughs> That's my initial takeaway before diving into any of the more complex things. Those are my very broad strokes. On Twitter the other day, like someone posted this really like insane straw man of Freud and I like felt an impulse to like argue against it. But then I like resisted. <laughs> it's like, I, it just feels foolish to like argue about Freud. But truly post-hatred of sex, it does feel like if our favorite contemporary thinkers and their interpretations of Freud are actually found in the text, you know, which I think we've, you know, <laughs> maybe questioned a little bit, then Freud is pretty correct. And regardless, lots of those initial insights are so important for so many of the things that are so foundational to our thinking in the show. Yeah. It's always funny when someone just like brings up a straw man of Freud. Just like everything's a penis. <laughs> it is kind of there. <laughs> Everything kind of is a penis. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But I think the neo-Freudianism, I'm just going to call it neo-Freudianism, which already isn't new. So that's already happening in Deleuze and Guattari with anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. where They're like, you don't have to like Freud the person and Freud the doctor is incredibly suspect. And even Freud the theorist is kind of bad. But the unconsciousness, like that's a very important concept. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So interestingly, this is the second day that we've tried to record this. Yesterday we started and I felt like really terrible and kind of overwhelmed and we stopped. And I think part of the reason was that I had spent a lot of the afternoon the day before and that morning, you know, really kind of pouring over the text that we were going to do and that I did find it quite literally triggering. Um, in some ways that I didn't expect until I actually had to like engage with them talking about it. That's the thing that's so fantastic about the text is that in her idea of limit consent, which we're going to get into, that the very book itself is something that she wants to be engaged in that way. So like at the Mm -hmm. end of the introduction, she says, more than anything, I wrote this book for readers who savor their experiences, who are willing to push themselves to the limits of self-understanding who are able and eager even to bend their will, for readers willing to be pulled out of reason to tread into something raw and tender, for readers who yearn to go beyond the sensible. There is an elsewhere in yourself to which these pages may take you. I have, in fact, written this book, imagining you giving yourself over to me, which is a strange thing to say, given that I do not know you. Neither do you. Let us begin. One of the base claims of the book is that we are always somewhat opaque to ourselves. The idea that we are masters of ourselves or gods of ourselves is a delusion. And so to engage, to like truly engage with a challenging text or work of art or kink as we're going to get into is to in some way engage with those parts of the self that are opaque and obscured even from the self as it exists as a conscious being. I also think along similar lines that it's very intentional that this book begins with a slap. (laughs) It begins with that exquisite slap. And so we approach this text being like, oh, it'll be manageable (laughs) as she writes. And so like maybe we want a... Maybe we want a mediocre slap instead of an exquisite (laughs) slap. Yeah, we were like, oh, we can manage this. It'll just be like more. I mean, certainly that's not what this book is, but there is so much mediocre theory that is just (laughs) dispensing mediocre slaps. (laughs) And then this one hits you with an exquisite slap and it's really (laughs) difficult to know. Fuck. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't expecting it to go as hard as it did. Mm hmm. So when we say it starts out with a slap, it starts out with this patient, Carmen, who is talking about having this experience, the sexual experience where she consents to be slapped. And what she consented to is the idea of a mediocre slap. But then when she is slapped in a way that is actually exquisite, that is so much better than she expected, it puts her into a state of overwhelm that gives her the impulse of wanting to withdraw consent. Mm -hmm. And so that is the moment of experience from which we are taking off. Something that's so overwhelming. I think it's also not just about her impulse to withdraw the consent was that it was so exquisite. It wasn't anything that she could have possibly 
thought to consent to because it pushed her beyond the limit of her previous experiences and expectations. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So for Carmen, the kind of consent that we're talking about, like the consent that she wanted to withdraw, that consent is not just a consent that exists in between her and the one who slapped her, right? It's also something not just interpersonal, but internal. Mm -hmm. An important way to understand that is that when we consent to something with another, we open ourselves up to the otherness in ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we're not just encountering possible opacity of someone outside of ourselves. We're encountering that in the opacity that is always in ourselves. And so one way to look at that is to think about Hegelian dialectics gave us, you know, an ethics of recognition. So that can be kind of thought of as like the affirmative consent model. So like, Wishes and boundaries are communicated and negotiated, recognizing each other's needs so as to reach a synthetic conclusion. But what Avgi wants to do in this text is not that. So it's not about just the consent between you and the other that makes you, that kind of gives you an awareness of self, Mm -hmm. but it's actually something that she wants to draw from Bataille. So where Hegel gives us a vision of self-consciousness that exists because of the other, Bataille gives us an understanding of self-consciousness as the unknowable in us, which is an experience of a strange order, and that it does not appear phenomenally. So basically, part of what these experiences of overwhelm or limit consent are doing is taking these things that do not appear phenomenally, that are happening internally, that are literally the unknowable in the self Mm -hmm. and then they are making them perceptible in some way yeah so these things that are unknowable in ourselves so how that can be rendered into the material world so that it can become perceptible that is appear phenomenally in the world where it can cause a lasting impression because for hegel it's the alterity of the other and their opacity that then makes the self concrete for oneself but for her the shift is that there's also a lingering opacity within ourselves that is important. She also compares this to glissant, or what glissant called being in relation. Mm-hmm. So the radical potential for self and world making that arises when we meet the other without trying to exercise our will over them, and when we surrender to our own foreignness to ourselves. So affirmative consent promises to close the gap between ourselves and the other, but it trades the opaque for recognition. Mm. So fundamentally, it's something that assumes that the self is something that is fully accessible, that we can be gods of ourselves, that we can know ourselves, that we can know our desires, that we can know what we want. But what limit consent is doing is changing that paradigm to be able to think about the opacity in ourselves. So the thing that can't be reduced to meaning, that can't be communicated through words, communication will only take us so far. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting, and she expands upon this later on, is that there's this Copernican turn that she's mapping out in psychoanalysis or, or that she's wanting to do with this notion of limit consent. So rather than the traditional, you're gonna have to help me with the pronunciation, is it Tolmic? Ptolemy, like PT, like mm-hmm. Ptolemy. Yeah, Ptolemy. Right? Yeah. 
So rather than following, is it Ptolemic? Yeah, yeah, sure, why not? Rather than following Ptolemy and this notion of we're the center of the universe, like everything is about me, there's a decentering of the self and we're part of this constellation of relations. I like the reappropriation of the Copernican term, yeah. even though that is just full academic ease. <laughs> there's also something that just like, it's not always about you. <laughs> It's just also a pretty sick burn, which I'm always about. So. Um. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the relationship with this opacity and how it connects to what she describes as the terribly beautiful. So the ways in which Carmen's opacity or the ways in which she uses opacity to unpack this terribly beautiful slap, this slap that is shattering, for example. So one of the main points here is that much of Western philosophy through Kant or through Barth is how I pronounce it, I think. Barthes. Have argued for the beautiful in ways that historically exclude people of color mm. and just generally exclude concepts of like the terrible and that always center around whiteness, around straightness. Around the economy of desire. Absolutely. And so within this limit consent, on top of the way that marginalized people are less invested in these dominant systems that comprise and build up the ego, which it may be why some of us are maybe more interested in that sort of self-shattering that can come with limit consent. There's a horror to it. There's a terror to the shattering of self, right? So like, as we talked about in the horror of desire episode, desire taken to its conclusion, if we think about the ego as this stable thing and then desire as this as the things that are not quite knowable to ourselves that can drive us in ways that we may not fully understand and could even destroy that stability there is a certain horror to that but it's also like a beautiful beautiful horror mm -hmm. um, and so being able to think about the terribly beautiful is an ability to then be able to think of the beautiful and the grotesque the beautiful and like body horror is then a way of being able to think beauty like from marginalization mm. so here also when she's like talking about how limit consent or like the self-shattering is an aesthetic experience she says mm. i rely on the term aesthetic experience to reference experience that is not the property of the subject but that arises out of an encounter with the others and our own alterity so an aesthetic experience is something that throws us into that self-shattering, that kind of like moment of conflict with our ego and the opaqueness in and of ourselves through that conflict with either an interaction with the other, with another person or like a work of art or mm -hmm. really beautiful mountains. You know, that the aesthetic experience doesn't really matter. It could be anything for anyone. It brings you up against something that then drudges up or unhooks something in the unconscious mm -hmm. that then becomes a phenomena and emerges from the unconscious in a way that is able to be seen in and of that move that is both a terrifying and a beautiful experience like very much I think the sublime yeah the, the rapture of the limit experience mm -hmm. 
And so it specifically talks about the terribly beautiful in the context of Fred Moden's picture of Emmett Till and the horror of Emmett Till's murder and of this picture and that witness, which I think we can be in relation to some of the things we've talked about in Christian mysticism and like the confrontation with like, you know, the figure of Jesus or, you know, the ties like tortured prisoner. Mm -hmm. But the way in which that intersects with development of like racialization is going to be something that we're going to dive in with a lot more detail in the chapters to come. And so we're going to save going far into that for that. So beyond the triggering effects, I think we should talk about the ways in which this text is bleeding edge. So again, beyond the triggering effects that you mentioned and the difficulties of teasing through all of the very dense theory, what is it that makes it so difficult to give a straightforward or systematic breakdown of the key issues? Or at least maybe that's my reading, but I felt like it was really tricky just to give a narrative account of what's happening. In the same way that our coverage of hatred of sex showed how that text really challenges some pretty I think like commonly held orthodoxies throughout the left around sexuality. And I would say that sexuality beyond consent takes those a step further. So specifically taking on the way that we understand trauma and the way that we understand consent. So in the same way that we were talking last episode that it's kind of difficult to go in front of a class and like, what would it mean to rethink violation as like something that could be positive? (laughs) It's similarly difficult because going into this conversation, we're not saying abuse is not a thing. We're not saying that violation is not a thing. We're not saying that violation of consent as it's understood is good. What we're doing is recomplicating and redefining and giving like different structures to understand those things through that I think give much more possibility for understanding how the actual psyche and actual sex works. (laughs) I think super key in this, and this is something that we've talked about before, and you've pulled quotes from Versoni and Tendine and Oliver Davis about how it isn't about violating others. It's not like an impetus of like violation good, go out and violate. (laughs) It's a self-violation and a self-undoing. So it's a deeply personal project insofar as like we are subjects in process <laughs> to use a little Kristeva. So the reappropriation of a self-violation, not a violation of others. Yeah, absolutely. The initial way that she addresses current ideas of how trauma functions is that we think of trauma as this thing that is unchanging and immobile. And so it's this thing that we can therefore work through in this quite concrete way. Like if you go into therapy, you can work through your trauma and then you're no longer traumatized or the trauma goes away. Or if you do not trigger the trauma, if you put up walls so that the trauma stays down, then you will be safe. If you secure your boundaries and borders... (laughs) Absolutely. And so she's arguing that that idea is inherently traumatophobic and that traumatophobia keeps trauma inert and that trauma, in fact, the way it functions is that it needs to circulate. So 
it needs to be a part of our psyche and always part of the way we understand ourselves. And actually the idea that trauma is something that we can just work through and then it goes away is not actually how the psyche works. Like everything that happens to us changes the psyche. And so instead we need to work through the human impulse to cling to the idea that trauma can be resolved, where at best we live in their aftermath on different terms than when they were inflicted on us. Relinquishing the idea that trauma can be repaired opens paths to thinking about what subjects do with their trauma. Once we admit that trauma is something that we have, it is with us, what can be done with that trauma? Yeah, which mirrors... Freud's argument at the end of the case studies in hysteria. So it's not about fully relieving someone of their illness. It's not about curing. It's about transforming one's hysterical misery into common unhappiness Mm -hmm. so that one is better armed against that unhappiness. So you can't root it all away. He actually uses surgical metaphors. It's not about purely getting rid of it. He says, I've often in my own mind compared cathartic psychotherapy with surgical intervention. I've described my treatments and brought out their analogy with the opening up of a cavity filled with pus and scraping out the region. An analogy that finds its justification not so much in the removal of what is pathological as in the establishment of conditions that are more likely to lead to the course of a process and the direction of recovery. And I think recovery can be understood super open-ended as not as a like complete healing or remo- removal. There's still going to be that scar. Trauma literally roots back into a scar, psychic or physical. And it's just about making life more livable. Mm-hmm. That's my little Freud rant. <laughs> to add on to that, the idea that Freud and his earlier thinking thought of the unconscious as a psychic structure that developed in order to house repressed traumatic memory. And recovering these memories, his early thinking went, could empty the unconscious of its contents, which implied that one could be cured of an unconscious. But then he would eventually abandon that idea. But that initial idea continues to haunt how we think about trauma. So even though he would go on to think that the unconscious was an ever-persistent force that never dissipates and that we encounter in what the patient does to the analyst, not just what the patient tells them. And there's that Tim Dean, like, neo-Freudianism where psychoanalysis is a discourse, it's radically open-ended, it's not pathologizing. Reading all of the different case studies, because as you mentioned, she utilizes her practice to inform her writing and that's what makes it so compelling. In what ways is her framework critical to more conventional, like vanilla psychoanalytic practices? Maybe let's think a little bit about like what opacity does. So you mentioned her reading of Freud and how she's critical of like the Freud that wants to empty the unconsciousness and to like mm-hmm. heal. So that's like super different from these conventional and I wanna say vanilla. <laughs> I think that she has a very BDSM-y <laughs> approach to psychoanalysis. Oh, yeah. Um, you can tell there's experience <laughs> here for sure. What is the status of opacity? So as a term of art, so how do we make that clear? <laughs> how do we have a conversation about opacity? Fundamental to her argument is the idea that there is always a opacity to ourselves, that we are never fully 
clear to ourselves and part of the aesthetic experience of overwhelm that she is going to get into here is about having an encounter with that opacity that basically gives us an encounter with the ineffable in ourselves. So the things that have not taken on meaning and gone into our way of understanding the world that still exist in this world outside of meaning within our psyche. And so it's much easier to recoil from opacity than to give yourself over to it. I think this also ties into the straw man Freud's. The engagement with opacity, you're not doing this weird search for origins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That ends up, I think, being the core of everything that is rotten about Freud. Yeah. The retroactive search of an origin, as Avgi will mention in chapter one, searching for the why rather than engaging with the how. Mm -hmm. In freud there is infantile sexuality and then there's like adult sexuality and infantile sexuality is one where sexuality is entirely attached to parts attached to the skin and the infant coats all of these things that it encounters because the consciousness is still not at the level that it actually is able to really have an idea of self and other even outside of the mother right Mm -hmm. and so everything is coded with this intense meaning. And then Freud at certain points in his thinking goes and create this kind of like mature adult sexuality, which is basically where you overcome through puberty, your infantile sexuality, and you redirect that towards penetrative sex with two partners who are a man and a woman. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you, you know, hopefully within the marriage bed or whatever. And that that is like the most proper thing, but that he also, at other points in his thinking, he also withdraws from that. And so one of the things that Avgi is doing here is really resurrecting the idea of infantile sexuality, which for Freud is then in adults, basically perversion, right? Polymorphously Mm -hmm. perverse sexuality that is sexuality attached to other things. So That would be homosexuality, that would be like fetishism, that would be, you know, anything that is outside of this heteronormative penis and vagina sex. And so the radical thing here that is taken from Freud is that Freud does not see this perversion as like inherently bad. Mm -hmm. And the turn that Avgi makes is that all sexuality inherently has this perversion to it. And actually the problem is the very tamed sexuality that has tried to distance itself from that inherent perversion of infantile sexuality Mm -hmm. that is the real problem that has separated itself from the way that it actually like confronts our unconscious in freud it only becomes perverse when someone fails to develop appropriately because children are supposed to have this nomadic understanding of sexuality my brain is poisoned right now with the loose because this is the cool freud it's the really interesting freud And I know that I think we both responded a little bit differently to the use of infantile sexuality. I really loved it, actually. I love the reappropriation of that because I think as much as when Freud tries to place origins on sexuality and when he tries to shore up boundaries and place labels and when he tries to give the appropriate developmental processes of what it means to develop into adulthood, that's when it gets nasty. (laughs) That's when it gets violently homophobic. 
despite the fact that he says that perversions are normal it's just that they become intensified when someone fails to develop correctly so like there's this notion of sexuality like moving freely throughout the body so children experience sensuality and pleasures in ways that are hypersexual and fascinating ways but then like radically desexualized because appropriate sexuality is just located in the genital region so we talked about the ways that both foucault and then Freud, within the context of hatred of sex through the idea of the infantile sexual, ties into like Rubin's idea of benign sexual variation, and just these ideas that I think are like found very naturally, like amongst leather folk and just like gay people in general, probably. Even among children. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think my main thing is that infantile sexuality is a term that like I understand why it's called infantile sexuality. And it's like literally called that in Freud. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the fact that like the sexual is something that begins in the psyche from when you're born, which in and of itself is a controversial idea because there's this idea that kids are completely non-sexual and like have no relationship to sexuality. But like the fact that something that seems so natural and obvious, which is that like sexuality is something that does not conform to the most boring level cis heteronormative value and is something that actually like develops through all of these complex things in our unconscious that we take on throughout our entire life, starting from the time we're literal babies. Mm -hmm. Continuing to call it infantile, <laughs> like up and against, you know, the adult sexuality. It's not the most ideal terminology for me. Uh -huh. I really liked it, but that's because I think that the interesting thing about infantile sexuality is that it sort of is and isn't sexual. And I think that that is a really good framework for understanding sexuality in adults or like that kind of openness and that playfulness or that lack of overt sexual intentions. And then when we start going back, once the infantile sexuality like turns into the adult sexuality, like once we start thinking about appropriate modes of development, that's when we start going back and pathologizing. So I think of the Wolfman case. The Wolfman is neurotic, but he's not really. He just has an STD and likes doggy style. Um, so Wait, what? <laughs> the Wolfman, that famous case. I don't. I it's don't, okay. They, I don't know. You don't know it. Freud's patient, the Wolfman, is really important to his theory of infantile sexuality because that's where he posits the theory that there is an originary trauma that leads to perversion. And that's where he gives this whole account of how exposure to sexuality comes back and haunts us in our future adulthood. Mm, okay. So the straw man Freud, which kind of is Freud in this essay, is the, oh, you saw your father's penis and then you're reminded of it as an adult and now you're impotent or something stupid like that. In the case of the Wolfman, Freud theorizes that the Wolfman is neurotic because he saw his parents having sex as a child, but it wasn't just that he saw his parents having sex as a child. He saw his father mounting his mother doggy style 
crazy. Okay. Which isn't why he's the Wolfman. He's the Wolfman because of his dreams. But I just think it's really funny. But Freud is going through and doing exactly what Avgi cautions against. He's saying, like, why are you like this? Why, 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 why? And, like, chasing all of these roots, like, through this active translation of, oh, well, there's something about the fact that you like cutting snakes in half. It's because of your dad's penis. Oh, like, there's something about the Roman numeral nine because it's a woman opening her legs. Or the reason why you liked catching butterflies is because... It's like a woman's vagina. So like all of this translation. But the wolfman, like in his infantile sexuality, he's just vibing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Freud is always telling him like, you're wrong. You're wrong. Like there's something wrong with you. Like you saw your sister while you were bathing as a child. You saw castration. And he's just like, I, I didn't. I saw a vagina. I didn't know what I was looking at. I just thought front butt. It's just a butt from the front. And it was Freud that was doing all this pathologizing. So the wolfman, like, in his infantile sexuality and, like, even with that fluid sexuality into his adulthood, seemed to be living a very happy life. And he wasn't perverted or wrong. Like, the fact that he saw his sister naked didn't traumatize him. The fact that he liked it from behind wasn't indicative of originary trauma. It was Freud's pathologizing that was ultimately incredibly harmful. And so that's why I like infantile sexuality. And that's why I like the reappropriation of it. Mm, okay. Because I think there's a lot of queerness there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's just something so cute <laughs> Yeah. about two children bathing naked, or at least the memory of it, and the wolfman just innocently being like, well, I didn't sexualize that at least not in the way you freud are sexualizing it retroactively for me i was just a kid bathing naked with my sister yeah um, absolutely and i think that's the really fantastic turn that the text makes is that the way that the unconscious is developing when you're a young child it's not like the way that i think freud often talks about it where the child is actually getting the fully sexual meaning that you know they like may encounter in some way like due to the way that people in the world are sexualized or in the ways like seeing their parents have sex or seeing their parents naked or any sort of relationality like that that they're not actually projecting those meanings those meanings don't even exist for them yet and so those things are all like taken in by the unconscious and are actually like not things that have fully taken form. And so it, it's much more useful to ask the how rather than the why. Like, what can we do with this feeling of desire that, like, the patient has with the analyst as opposed to, like, why are you like this? Anyone can talk about why you're like this. And there can be a pleasure to that, like, in interrogating mm -hmm. the self and, like, trying to find meaning for the reason you are how you are. But in the end, the idea that you can actually find that meaning in a concrete way is always going to be on some level of fantasy. You're always going to be chasing and creating your own meaning, which is fine. Yeah. But like there is a lot more value in the thing in and of itself, in the desire in and of itself. This also taps into some really lousy understandings of how the memory works. So thinking that the memory works like a video camera, that I'm just going back and revisiting the same films over and over again. Absolutely. <laughs> and that yeah. those memories aren't changing and evolving as I'm changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. And how my understanding of those memories isn't also subject to change as I change. Absolutely. Should we go back to the slap? <laughs> okay, back to the slap. I think it's 
helpful to understand limit consent as a foil to notions of affirmative consent. And I think we have to tread very carefully here because affirmative consent is the dominant paradigm. So it is the dominant, respectable, appropriate, super utopian notion of, of all encounters as being enthusiastic, desire, transformative, pleasurable. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, thinking back to college and the way that like affirmative consent frameworks were talked about, it really does feel like in some ways just like a desperate plea fighting back against a very real tangible rape culture and just being like, hey, <laughs> don't fucking rape people. <laughs> um, and and just like trying to give like the sex for babies um, ethical framework where it's like, you know, someone should be into it and all of these other ideas. But then if you get into any sort of sex framework that is a little bit more complicated than that, especially like within BDSM dynamics, it just becomes not useful so quickly. And one of the things that Avgi brings up is that consent is also something that like happens inside of us. So in the action of the process of being slapped, you know, her consent was withdrawn but that consent was also like given. So even though she had this internal conflict around the idea of consent, it wasn't a violation on the part of the person who slapped her. Because part of the experience of having sex is that capacity for overwhelm, right? Like that you can get to the point where it feels like too much. And I think within the idea of affirmative consent, there's an idea that if it becomes too much, that fundamentally, like, you must always stop or it is a violation. Whereas in a lot of, like, a lot of the sex I have, certainly, um, I'm actually going after that feeling of overwhelm. So I am mm -hmm. specifically negotiating terms to where I will hit that idea of overwhelm. You know, as she points out, that this can be so many different things for different types of people being reduced to like begging because it's like too much or whatever, but I still want it to continue. And so, mm -hmm. you know, then in that case, I'll have like a safe word. I still have an ability to stop it if I really need to. But at the same time, part of the experience is about that feeling that like, I can't go on. This is too much. And it's within that intensity of being overcome, of being self-shattered, as Bersani would say, that, mm -hmm. that the unconscious opens up and that these other parts of the self open up. And I think that's also in lots of our comparisons to how leather practice often feels religious. I think that that is part of how Avgi like articulates that these experiences of overwhelm can like literally make the ineffable that we are unable to express because they are parts of our unconscious that we have not coded with meaning and therefore like cannot express that through the experience of overwhelm, those things can literally become phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. And that that is part of what desire can do, that sexuality is not just the conscious brain, that sexuality encompasses the whole body and the unconscious. So sex has this kind of unique power there to do something kind of amazing. <laughs> and I would say that that particular experience is kind of how I orient my whole life, honestly. It's 
kind of what I live for. And just to quote one of Abke's sources, so this is from Screw Consent by Joseph J. Fischel, which gives a really amazing critique of affirmative consent, or specifically of an enthusiastic consent, which is which is misguided insofar as it assumes that you have full sovereign control of yourself in those intimate, vulnerable moments. So he says, My fear is that by packaging our substantive and wine-ranging sexual values into the procedural and winnowing talk of consent, we are sacrificing a far more capricious project that could zoom out of sex and zoom in on sexual culture. What values, norms, and practices in our culture facilitate mutually fulfilling, creative, non-rote, non-blah sex? What values, norms, and practices in our culture enable unpleasant, unwanted, or even assaultive sex? So in what ways does consent end up being weaponized against marginal communities, for example, like, for example, the kink community? I definitely know a lot of folks, including myself, like I've been told that I've been abused before when I was not being abused because of being in a, in a certain type of dynamic. And, you know, as we've talked about in the past, that like some of those power structures that we go into, those power dynamics hold a certain horror to them. Like part of the Mm -hmm. horror of desire is that desire is pushing you like close to self-annihilation. Like self-shattering is this deeply meaningful thing, but it is also a thing that is deeply vulnerable and deeply scary. And within that is vulnerability. And vulnerability means opening yourself up to harm. And we've talked about how that harm can be very real. Abuse is very real. Violation is very real. But because of the limits of our conversations around how consent functions, lots of times people who practice BDSM are criminalized and marginalized because there's this idea that these things are impossible to consent to, that like, Mm -hmm. no matter what, if we are thinking in this, you know, affirmative consent framework that like you cannot do this. And so another thing that opaqueness does and like the necessity of thinking about the self in terms of that we are never fully clear to ourselves is also that our desire is never clear to ourselves, which means that our unconscious and also our ego that is up and against our unconscious and our desire is always built around all of the structures in the world with all of those problematic aspects. So she says here, In other words, our very sense of the self and our functional stability is, to varying degrees, also reliant on problematic social values. The significant implication is that white supremacy, male superiority, heteronormativity, and so on reside not in the unconscious but in our egos, and as such, they cannot be eliminated through insight or self-knowledge. If this seems like a big claim, it is because it is. (laughs) The ego thus develops around a kernel of things that it cannot understand. So our sense of selfhood is built around all of these concepts that we are introduced to that then we cope with meaning. So like gender and race structures that we build an ego around. And obviously all of those things are super fucked up (laughs) and have a lot of very specific problematic aspects. So the idea that then sexuality would be completely free and that desire would be completely free from those fantasies is in itself a fantasy. Yeah. I think that there's also the risk of 
doing a really simplistic reduction of one's desires of being like, well, if you fantasize or desire that thing, it means that you really, really want it or which isn't always the case. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think an another fascinating thing that she does here is by saying that the ego, like our very selfhood is fundamentally built up out of all of these structures like gender and race that are socially constructed, but are also very real in the way that they affect on our lives, that that ego is universally invested in structural stability, which means that our impulse to avoid that experience of overwhelm, that experience that brings up the disorganization of the ego or the artificial construction of the ego is something that we inherently have a impulse to balk against, to run away from. Mm -hmm. But, and I think this is really brilliant, she says, as such, those for whom dominant social values work better because the world makes a home for them are better served by the ego's investment in maintaining the status quo. Those who are minoritized by virtue of their sex, race, nationality, gender, and so on, may more readily be willing to risk disturbing the conservative forces of their egos. To put this differently, it is possible that persons who do not get to be at home in the world may be more susceptible, more readily receptive to the disquiet of their own opacity. I cannot relate to that more. Mm. You know, I've talked a lot about how leather queer spaces have always felt way more at home for me than lots of other queer spaces. And I think it's often because of that ability to kind of challenge those lines of the self, like such a fundamental part of the trans experience is already confronting the unknown in yourself in a way that I think the vast majority of people or of so-called cis people at least never really do. And also like you know, I th think I've mentioned in the past, I think trans people have a certain take on like body horror and the idea of like the body being other just because that's often such a integral part of our experience of like growing up is like either that some part of our body feels wrong or in puberty, the idea of our like body revolting against us. And so I think that I have such a drive to engage with the parts of myself that are obscured from myself and that I am always up and against my own ego and I'm all about destabilizing my ego, it makes a lot of sense to me that trans people would be more open to that than other people, which is not to say all. So just rooting that more within the introduction, I'm going to read what is kind of a long quote, but what defines limit consent for us. So limit consent has ties to the rousing of the sexual drive and entails a nuanced negotiation of limits that belongs neither to the domain of activity nor to the sphere of passivity. Limit consent is not something we exercise or something that is done to us. It has more to do rather with surrendering to another or more precisely with surrendering to the opacity in the other and to the opacity in ourselves. Consent, we will see is not only something that we offer to another, it is also an, an internal affair. While the usual paradigm around consent is about maintaining control of a situation, limit consent is more about giving up control. If consent is not a way to take control, but within a certain given context, a way to let go of it, we cannot rely on the outcome of an encounter to decide whether the encounter was ethical. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Insofar as it critiques a sovereign notion of what consent is, so... We have a really facile notion 
I think for really politically important legal reasons, I mean, I both think this and I don't think this. So as an abolitionist, <laughs> um, I don't think that there should be sex crimes, but I do think that the category is important to have articulated. It's important that we have a notion of consent that can be freely given or freely not given, but it also completely misunderstands consent to think that it's an object that I like give like to see it as an economy that I have complete control over is just really misguided it assumes a degree of control that you can't have over yourself especially because when you're consenting to something or when you're not consenting to something you're in relation to another who is already always opaque to you so it's already within this space of opacity and then also because you're in relation with another you're being pushed up against things that you don't have control over so it just seems strange to think of consent as something that happens before an act and that defines the act versus something that is much more fluid so in this last line we can't rely on the outcome to decide whether the encounter was ethical because we don't have control over the outcome other variables come into play um, and other variables lead to circumstances where we might invoke consent or take consent away so again it's not something that we exercise we just don't have that amount of control over ourselves we also don't have that amount of control over our relationships with others, it's something that we all are surrendering to. And then we're stuck with this moment of retroactively making sense of it. And I think that's the psychoanalytic work that she's encouraging us to undertake with her. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's no such thing as consent. There isn't this, this silver bullet thing that I can just give. And like the idea that there can just be a gold standard, always universal consent actually precludes the possibility for consent because it means that you can't opt out of it or retroactively take it away which is i think incredibly important if you want to have a nuanced understanding of how power works which i know sounds kind of kafka-esque and scary like we want that gold standard misogynists and rape apologists are always afraid of this kafka-esque fear that they're going to be like pulled out of their beds and put before a tribunal and accused of rape when they like did something within the rape culture that they believe is ethically permissible but then when actuality was a violation so like there's this fear there's this like deeply misogynistic like fear that feminists and survivors are retroactively like calling things that weren't rape rape calling things that weren't violation violation but that's also just the nature just of encounters in general is that we come to understand them differently and that it is something for which there is no checklist in fact if there was a checklist that would be super creepy It'd be really creepy if someone was like well i got this contract with you now and like the contract stays like you need to be able to renegotiate it you need to be able to say pause <laughs> um, i'm reminded of that scene from secretary where she's like stop <laughs> And then what she slaps yeah. him back to the slap. <laughs> yeah. Well, they never negotiated a goddamn safe word. Like That's this. true. Yeah. They needed to communicate a lot better. So, for example, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that within the marriage contract became the property of their husband in the law and also within the normative framework that society has. And so they were like doing their wifely duties. So having sex with their husbands I'm sure retroactively there's a lot of women that went back and like, holy shit, I was being raped. I just didn't have that framework. So I think that's really important, in which 
I think, goes to this notion of limited consent and also critiques this notion of a gold standard consent. So gold standard consent, silver bullet notions of consent create categories of fundamentally unviolatable people who always end up being the most vulnerable in a society. So right now it's sex workers who, under the lies of the law, like in certain states, are unrapeable by cops. A cop can legally rape a sex worker, so that means that they're kind of an unrapeable category, or historically wives, or now with all this like crazy terrible shit with like trans panic, like we can look at how like trans women end up also being sort of fundamentally unviolatable just because they're so devalued and they aren't given any kind of bodily autonomy. Yeah. Or even in the past, children didn't own their own bodies. Or in the past, also, enslaved people didn't own their own bodies, so they were just fundamentally unviolatable. And that's because of this concrete notion of consent that actually harmed them, because it was something that wasn't malleable and wasn't fluid. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like lots of times people don't fully understand like how concrete that is. I have a friend who experienced a really horrific rape but it was like a little bit outside of the city. So it was like in a different county and the rape was like by a cis woman and my friend is a trans woman. And lawyers were just like very explicit that like if it had been, you know, like 20 miles over and had been in like this county, then like, yeah, maybe that would go with a judge and with a jury. But out here, you know, in X area, like there's no way, like it's not even worth pursuing. pursuing. Yeah because of just knowing how that will be framed in the structure of it. And we're in a blue state, so. Yeah, shit. Sorry we went on the bleak tangent, but it's important to understand, like, why consent is at issue. Like, why is it that us, like, two feminists are critical of consent, despite how, again, important it is as a paradigm. And it isn't consent itself. It's this notion of this super black and white hegemonic notion of affirmative consent of enthusiastic consent that leaves no space for those gray areas because actually the violations that take place in those gray areas are both the meaningful self-shattering ones so those positive notions but then also those extreme violations that are sexual violence that just they're rendered illegible so limit consent i think through its retooling of opacity and through its willingness to engage with opacity actually is what renders those limit experiences legible. And I think that there's also space to read this through an abolitionist framework. So I think that it is possible to say that there are violations which aren't the affirmative ones, the ones that are bad violations, while also saying that we need to be abolitionists. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that comes up reliably here is, so this limit consent framework where you go into this experience of overwhelm that on a level that this is a aesthetic experience and that it's something that has no inherent value within capitalism. It's not something that is like producing anything. It's something that is purely for itself. And in that way, like, you know, has this kind of like frivolous notion. Why would you overdrive and try to destabilize the ego, the very thing that is like structurally holding you together into a person who can like feed yourself and, you know, survive. <laughs> but like her tie-in in how this is fundamentally an aesthetic experience, very much akin to like how 
for instance, to watch like a really great film, like not a film that that you're watching because it like gives you good memories about your childhood or it makes you feel good or it like gives you a rush, you know, a roller coaster, but a film that like really in some way challenges you, maybe gives you bad feelings, you know, is really engaging and that you engage with it as itself instead of trying to decode it into meaning outside of it. Like you engage with the work of art as a work of art. And that within that experience of overwhelm where the work of art expresses itself on you and that that is a way of being aspects of the unconscious ineffable. Like when I was reading this book earlier, you know, even though it's a theory book, part of the triggering, it wasn't anything concrete, but in some way that was some part of myself that I am unaware of that was deeply disturbed and had trouble functioning because of my engagement with the text. And and I think this ties directly into how I understand like philosophy of myth, where mythology can only be understood as not something that is like a fiction, not something that is like a fun story to like divert the time. And also not as something that is literally true, like, you know, the gods literally existed. But as a third thing where like there is fundamental truth in mythology in engaging with it on its own terms and to then try to decode it and find the meaning, quote unquote, behind the myth is to completely misunderstand the things that are value about the myth in the first place. Which isn't to say that like you can't talk about the meaning, that the most important thing is to engage with the thing in and of itself. And so the same can be said about desire and about sexuality, like the things that are important about our desires, while sure, you can create a narrative about it, but what's most important about it isn't the why. The the most important thing about it is the how, like what does it bring up for you? Like what does it do for you? Because the actual experience of what we're living is more important than creating some like justification for us having the thing that we want, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I such a weirdo? Like, I have to justify <laughs> myself. Like, you don't have to. You can just take that and, like, what does that do for you? Like, what can you do with it? How can you change that? Or how can it progress in interesting ways? <laughs> this brings us to Mia. Tell us about Mia. As Mia describes, she arrived to her first consultation session six years too late. And she had a really difficult time as a Black trans woman feeling comfortable with any therapist and Avgi is wonderfully self-aware about the problems in psychoanalysis. So during their first meeting, it went well. So Mia began to open up and she describes that she really liked her initially. But when it came to the end of the session, the discussion of the price or the fee of psychoanalysis came up. And for those that don't know, psychoanalysis is incredibly expensive (laughs) it's an expensive long-term commitment that sessions with a seasoned analyst can cost hundreds of dollars an hour you have to meet with them ideally multiple times a week and the length of your treatment is relatively indefinite and so at the time Avgi was a second year candidate and she was beginning to build up her private practice of psychoanalysis 
And so she had relatively low fees. And she was anxious about discussing the fee because she didn't want to betray her relative newness to the profession. Or she didn't want to portray it. But then she soon realized this anxiety was kind of in error because Mia could easily afford it. But despite the relatively low price, Mia's reaction was of betrayal and frustration. So she immediately asked for a sliding scale. Inaki like had a sliding scale that she had available or that she had available for clients that had actual need. But what's really interesting about this account is that Mia did not actually need that. She had plenty of financial means, Mm -hmm. but instead it was the idea of just having to pay this much for a thing anyway, especially like as a black trans woman, that she should have access to that despite having the means as a black trans woman. And I think also what is implicit here is that as a black trans woman, she should have access to psychoanalysis given psychoanalysis's problematic fraught history of anti-blackness and of heteronormativity and shit like that. So I think that that's also like why Mia's response was so strong. So Mia shot back that it's politically problematic to ask her to pay. And as they continued to talk about the price, Mia responded that she did not consent to this and that, and I quote, you screwed me. So there's this language of violation. At that point, time was up and Mia left and disdainfully paid. Surprisingly, (laughs) Mia came back. (laughs) But the night prior to her second session, she had a sexual dream about Avgi. So in the session, she recounted the dream and then explained the predicament I had put her in. Had I mentioned my fee on the phone, she would never have made an appointment. She would have never met me. She would not now be finding herself in the position of wanting to work with me. And therefore, she would have never gotten into this mess. But her only option was to pay me an uncomfortable amount. But now it was too late. The damage was done. Since she now did not want to see someone else, she would have to submit to me. Furiously silent, Mia weighed her options. So... (laughs) Mm -hmm. that idea of like having the experience and being like this is the only thing I can have so now I like have to pay you but I didn't consent to the fee is an interesting framework yeah so beautifully recapulates this question of limit consent so had I known what I was getting myself into I would have out of principle not have undergone the experience. I would never have agreed to meet with you. I would have never agreed to pay to that exorbitant, problematic price. But now that I've had that taste of it, I can't have anything else. I I need it. I want it now. But how dare you make me want it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How dare you screw me like that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Which, true, how dare you screw her like that? It It is some bullshit, but hey. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) That's the thing. It is some bullshit, but is it some bullshit? Is it? (laughs) No, not at all. And also, so Avgi at this point is like psychoanalytic treatments often bring up a lot of contention and are often difficult, but for it to be this difficult this early, it's like, (laughs) you know, not necessarily a good sign, but still, nonetheless, she decided to go along with it. And so she talks about her own ethics in this. So to me, the analyst's job is not to heal. It is to resist the narrative of restoration or repair 
to refuse the idea that anyone ever returns to some pre-lapsarian moment, to the restoration of innocence before trauma, or to a harmonious reconciliation toward a utopian future. The analyst, in other words, cannot afford to be traumatophobic. She needs to be traumatophilic. Much more important than repair is non-denominating relationship between the subject, the ego, and her unconscious, which also means a non-denominating relationship between the subject and object. And so there is a fundamental nature of psychoanalysis for her that there is the unexpected, there is surprise, there is contradiction, which is the thing that makes psychoanalysis into an aesthetic practice for her and kind of inherently an adventure. There is something necessarily unpredictable to it. I also think that there's an interesting way in which she compares Mia and Carmen's experiences. So, and I quote, recalling Carmen from early in our discussion, that while Carmen did not blame Ava, but recoiled from the experience, Mia accused me, but did not recoil. Her inventive solution, that we worked together against her consent, could be seen as an effort to find a way to stay in relation with me, not to move away from me, but to move into the gap space between us. So Carmen introduces this problem of that limit consent, and I think Mia and her openness to work within that space of limit consent to create this inventive solution is how those two cases work so well together in this chapter and how they frame the project. To enter the analytic relationship at all then, Mia and I both had to suspend our expectations and both of us did so against our consent, having to bend our will. So also like the mutuality of that is very interesting and the feeling of moral ambiguity of it, you know, like Mia using words like seduced Mm -hmm. into wanting that psychoanalysis and also the idea that like something like a sexual dream about a professional person, people will also talk about things like that as a violation, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about the sex dream a little bit because it's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So what I love is that when she does talk about sex in the introduction in chapter one, at least, sex is always left a little bit ambiguous. So she leaves the act always opaque, which is a wonderful aspect of her writing. So it's the sex dream, but the kind of sex dream it is, or how Mia describes it, is as this seduction. So this arousal being seduced from her, this longing for the analytic experience, a dream about someone who shared Avgi's features, seducing Mia and then hanging her out to dry. And also just like the circumstances of it that like Mia claimed to have been unable to dream in years. So mm-hmm. this dream made her unexpectedly hopeful, convincing her that she should work with me. But it also intensified her feelings of vulnerability. So my having screwed her in the first session now took center stage. <laughs> so the way that those things that are unknowable to us and like we don't quite understand can play on both of our desire and challenge something about the stability of our ego but maybe there's something that's too tempting about it Mm -hmm. and so we pursue it anyway we introduced the episode with this but to return avgi says that more than anything i wrote this book for readers who savor their experiences who are willing to push themselves to the limits of self-understanding 
who are able and eager even to bend their will. For readers willing to be pulled out of reason, to tread into something raw and tender. For readers who yearn to go beyond the sensible, there is an elsewhere in yourself to which these pages may take you. I have, in fact, written this book, imagining you giving yourself over to me, which is a strange thing to say, given that I do not know you. Neither do you. Let us begin. So already with the intro and through these examples, there's already this experience that the book is not supposed to just be consumed in this kind of sterile, um, stagnant way, like a stagnant text. It's supposed to be actively engaged with and to let it affect us Mm -hmm. and in turn, like, see what it brings up inside of us. And that requires a certain submission of self. And I think that really plays into how Bataille talked about wanting his writing to be read, that it can't be this like dead text said between like dead philosophers, that it has to be something that is actively lived, like you have to actively engage with the text, or or what's the fucking point? <laughs> or we'll just go back to doing Hegelian synthesis. <laughs> yeah, forever and ever. <laughs> Until the end of history. (laughs) (laughs) On to confessions. First one, cheated on my emotionally abusive boyfriend with a longtime friend. Oh, fuck that boyfriend. Yeah? I'm not letting my toxic thoughts exist so I can grow out of them. I just punish me. I think that thoughts of self-harm is very common. And I think that a lot of us experience negative thoughts as things that we're not necessarily like growing out of, which is not to say that you should do them. I just, I don't think you're alone. Yeah. I think that the work that we unpack today does a lot to talk about what it means to live with your trauma versus this idealist notion that we can surpass it, that we're going to cure ourselves from it. Absolutely. Okay. Next one. I think I'm a Christian and a communist. Welcome. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. Yeah, they exist. There's been a lot of Christian communists out there. Good for you. Mm -hmm. I'm still fucking slash friends with my ex, and it feels like she's my best friend sometimes, and I resent it. Yeah, that's a very, I think, understandable thing, that sometimes a relationship can change and you feel some sort of like loss there even though you like still have a relationship yeah and that ambiguity can be weird sometimes it would be easy if our exes were all just terrible people that we could just exercise from our lives (laughs) (laughs) and when we realize that it's much more complicated than that and especially if there's someone that we still want in our lives like it's hard to live in that ambiguity it's easy to resent that ambiguity Mm -hmm. Trauma of trying to open up to non-monogamous life has me questioning everything. Upside down, smiley face. (laughs) Upside down, smiley face. That's right. It's really, really difficult to try to be non-monogamous. People use frameworks for all types of ideologies and ways of living to do shitty things that they want to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think 
there are certainly many such cases where people become polyamorous as a way to just, you know, be inconsiderate or, you know, and like not really care about communication, even though the opposite is needed. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that happens a lot. And that's also okay. And you don't have to be non-monogamous if you don't want to, but also the opposite could have happened. The The main reason is that there's just more easy scripts for monogamy. So Yeah. Or this could be the kind of good trauma to opening up oneself or having to question all of those internalized norms about what love is and internalized norms about what jealousy ought to look like or how we ought to act or how we ought to be more or less possessive. That's right. Sometimes things can arise initially as something that feels potentially traumatic, but it can then be interpreted differently. Maybe you change with it. Opening us up to limited experience. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I want to be babied and adorned, but I am a teacher slash caretaker, so I don't get it back. Relatable. Yeah. I think that experience of being the caretaker and wanting to be taken care of is really common and very reasonable. I hope you can find someone to baby you. All right, and that's it for today. Thank you all always for submitting your confessions. As always, please, if you enjoyed, share the show with your friends. Go on to Instagram or Twitter and write us a comment. Sign up to our Patreon and help keep the show kicking. And just generally, you know, engage with the show and see what arises in the opacity of your own self. You can sign up at www.patreon.com and get a private RSS feed with access to exclusive and um, elongated episodes. We can't thank our patrons enough. You're the thing that really keeps us going. And have a lovely rest of your week. God bless. God bless. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly In that vine-covered chapel on the hill Your face was a hymn that lingers still so bless you, my darling, my angel. Heaven is mine and life is divine with you. Mondu will like literally hump next to his like duffed seal and he'll like <laughs> hump like the couch a little bit like but like next to the seal. Like the humping motion is like there but... You know, the seal's actually next to his, like, chest or, like, his face, you know? <laughs> it's a vibe. It's a vibe. <laughs> it's a three-way. Yeah. <laughs> but he's also on HRT and got an orchiectomy. <laughs> <laughs>
so he's basically trans um <laughs> and potentially a furry i mean aren't all dogs furries? <laughs> that that's that's actually let's leave that one for the philosopher <laughs> Bless you, darling, for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. Bless you for building a new dream. Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly in that vine covered chapel on the hill your face was a hymn that lingers still so bless you my darling my angel Heaven is more